Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Well, a very warm welcome. I'm feeling the love. Um, <laughs> I'm rich in case you missed it. Um, I'm one of the pastors here and we've been working through a series um, in the book of James um, and we're up to James chapter 3. Um, it's been uh, a hard-hitting series, uh, a little bit of a challenging series at times. Um, the book of James um, is written by James, um, who was the brother of Jesus. Um, he's writing to believers that were previously primarily based in and around Jerusalem, um, but then they've been scattered as a result of persecution that's come. The authorities have started to get quite heavy-handed with uh, the disciples, with the followers of Jesus, um, and we read about this kind of persecution throughout the book of Acts. And many of the Christians have fled Jerusalem to all sorts of different places, and that's why right at the beginning, he he writes to the 12 tribes that have been dispersed. Um, And... uh, Maybe, uh, I, mean, I mean, if you read James, it's really hard-hitting. I hope you've caught the wind of that over the last few weeks. It's really quite hitting, hard-hitting. He hits some real um, difficult, painful truths at times. Um, and I wonder whether part of it is because they're already facing persecution. So they're already going, going through challenges. They're already facing pressure. Um, and so James doesn't feel it necessary to pull any punches. Um, or maybe there's just an imminent danger in front of them as the church. And so he just gets straight to the point. He dives right in. But either way, James doesn't really mince his words. Um, he tells it pretty straight, um, and it hits us pretty hard. Uh, and if we uh, look at it, although it can make us wince at times, um, it actually really does us good. It really does us good. He tells it so straight, um, and it's so helpful. Um, and so I'm going to pray um, that as we open up this passage today, even though it might hit a bit hard, um, that actually we would really have open hearts to hear what the Lord would say to us through this passage. And so, Lord, we just um, come before you with humility. Lord, we want to sit under your word. And Lord, we, we pray that as we read just these few verses this morning, that Lord God, you would speak to us. Lord, that where you challenge us, Lord, that we would have soft, open hearts to you. That, Lord God, you would give us ears to hear what you're saying. Lord, whatever of my words is just noise and fluff, Lord, just, I just pray, take it away. But, Lord, whatever is of you, the substance of truth, Lord, we pray that that would take root in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. And so our passage today is going to be in James uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through to 18. And in this passage, James talks about two types of wisdom. And now, wisdom, um, I just want to read a quick verse from Proverbs that tells us about wisdom. In Proverbs 9, um, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That word for fear there is about respect. It's about reverence. It's it's about acknowledging the Lord's supremacy, the Lord having primary place. And that place of submission to God and being reverent before him and respecting him, that is the beginning of wisdom. 
And so everything else that we talk about, when we talk about wisdom, it flows out of um, God. When we talk about godly wisdom, we're talking about standing with reverence and respect before the Lord. But here, James, uh, in our passage in James 3, talks about two different types of wisdom. That wisdom that we just looked there, that reverence and respect for the Lord, and then this other type of wisdom, this worldly wisdom or earthly um, wisdom as we'll get into it. Wisdom itself is the application of knowledge that's used to make deliberate and informed decisions. You see, to just know something or to just understand things would be considered knowledge. But be able to be able to take that knowledge and then apply that knowledge into different situations and circumstances in life, that's wisdom. And James is going to explain to us um, these two different types of wisdom throughout these verses. Godly wisdom, a wisdom that comes from above, he describes it, and then earthly wisdom, if you like, a wisdom that comes from below. We're also going to look at the fruit of these types of wisdom. So what do, what do these different types of wisdom, what's the fruit that they produce in our lives? And so let's read uh, James 3, verses 13 to 18 together. So who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I told you it was hard-hitting. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we read about this godly wisdom in verse 13. We see that, that good conduct flows out of um, godly wisdom. It flows out of uh, this wisdom from above. In fact, conduct flows out of whatever wisdom you draw upon. And so actually, by extension from verse 13, actually bad wisdom or bad conduct flows out of earthly wisdom. An opposing wisdom to God's wisdom. Now, in this verse, uh, we've got the word meekness. Uh, it's not a word that we really use anymore. Um, it can sound a bit old-fashioned. Um, and if you try and define it, uh, define it, you probably define it in about three or four different ways. It's kind of like this, kind of like this, kind of like this. It's one of those words. Um, that's why some translations translate it as humility. Um, some of them translate it um, as gentleness. Um, however, both of those translations kind of imply some sort of uh, a weakness in it almost. Um, whereas actually meekness is about a deliberate disposition. It's about a deliberate perspective um, and way of seeing things. You see, interestingly, Paul uses this same word to describe Jesus' character in 2 Corinthians um, 10.1, uh, saying that Jesus... Uh, describing uh, Jesus' character uh, as 
There is. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Well, Jesus wasn't weak. So what does this word meekness mean? Jesus had the power to forgive sin, heal the sick, raise the dead. Meekness is not about weakness. We see that actually in Jesus, meekness is about that power that was in Jesus being under control. And then the way he responds shows us as much about his character of humility, gentleness, minus. When we talk about meekness, Jesus deliberately adopts this posture, if you like, of humility before others, of gentleness with others, um, of being mild with those that he meets. Not always. He has some very harsh words to say for some people. But when we talk about his meekness, that's what we're talking about. And James, uh, in this passage, is challenging us, uh, as he's actually already done in this letter in James 2, um, that just as works in James 2 uh, showed us what kind of faith we have, here James says um, the kind of works that you have show what kind of wisdom you have. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And if you were to search your heart, do we have godly wisdom that is humble, gentle, and mild that leads us into good conduct? Or perhaps if I ask it a slightly different way, if we don't have lives that lead to good conduct, then on what wisdom are we drawing from? Maybe there will be some of us even in this room. Perhaps even you're trapped in a pattern of sin. Uh, Maybe lying and you can't break the cycle. It just feels like one lie after another. Um, Or maybe even in a work context, you're prone to just bending the truth. Um, Perhaps even for effect or just to try and impress colleagues or something. What type of wisdom is that? It's not godly wisdom. Maybe even sin has just become habitual in your life. Maybe um, you're given yourselves to pornography and your understanding of male and female relationships is just completely skewed. That's not godly wisdom. Where did that wisdom come from? Relationships, if you like, that should be based on trust, respect, love and honour. Well, perhaps a relationship that you're in, has been, that trust has been broken. Maybe respect has been lost. Maybe uh, respect for your background, your heritage, where you come from. Maybe it's, maybe it's been uh, tarnished with careless words or something like that. Surely that's, that's not godly wisdom. Maybe even if you're in a work situation that you're facing and then you have conversations with people and those conversations just begin to maybe even undermine something that you're going for at work or something that you feel God's placed on your heart and it begins to test. You might label it competitiveness, that you're just somebody that's competitive and you like to sharpen one another and get the best out of each other. Um, When actually at its root, it's just jealousy. It's not godly wisdom. And in fact, James goes on in verse 14 to talk to us about this type of wisdom. In verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy... And selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom 
that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You see, there's no middle ground in James's mind. You either draw on wisdom from God, or you don't. It's either wisdom from above, or it's earthly wisdom. It's unspiritual, it's demonic. You see, bitter jealousy, as he talks about in verse 14, is like saying, I, I deserve, I deserve what they have. You can fill in the blank. I deserve X, Y, Z. Selfish ambition is like saying, I want, and I don't care how I get it, I want at all costs, dot, 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 fill in the blank. It reveals something of the motivation of our heart. And what James is saying is those things come from an an earthly wisdom. They come from a wisdom from below. It's unspiritual, it's demonic. Interestingly, if you look at these two statements, I deserve what they have and I I want at all costs, they kind of exemplify almost a, a, a culture within our society that's actually quite prevalent, entitlement. And what I mean by that is that, is, is that people, people believe that they are entitled to certain privileges. I'm not talking about rights and justice and tackling injustice. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people having expectations of certain privileges or, if you like, giving additional weight to their contribution. So perhaps you've come across people at work who disproportionately value their contribution. And they expect, although maybe doing the same role, they expect more compensation as a result. That's entitlement. That's what we're talking about. James actually encourages his readers to take action when they feel that rise of bitter jealousy or selfish ambition within them. And he says to them, doesn't he? He says, do not boast. Do not be false to the truth. Don't be arrogant. And put yourself at the center of decisions. Don't lie. Don't be hypocritical. It's also worth noting who James is writing to. Because we can often think of this being out there. I've given examples from the workplace. And we can think of it as being somehow removed from our day to day. Somehow it's the problem out in the world out there. Um, But actually James is writing to believers that have been scattered. He's writing to followers of Jesus. He's not writing to necessarily a mixed group, although there may well have been unbelievers that would have read it. But he's not writing to some that are believers, some that aren't, some that follow Jesus, some that aren't, and they're kind of on the fringes working their way in. No, in James 1, 1, verse 1, he tells us that he's writing to those that have been scattered, scattered because of persecution. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? How do we then apply this to our lives? Well, rather than thinking about it in terms of two completely distinct camps, either you draw your wisdom entirely from God or or, or you draw your wisdom entirely from the devil, demonic, rather than having these two separate camps that you kind of either find yourself in one or the other, I think what James is really getting at is when we face situations, when we face issues, when we face challenges, when we face pressures, when we face life, when we face circumstances of life, we have to make a choice. In that moment, are we going to draw on earthly wisdom, 
with this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? Or are we going to choose to follow the Lord and put our confidence and draw wisdom from God? You see, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you'll have known that challenge of wrestling temptation, of something inside of you wanting to draw you into something, draw you into something. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, in this moment, with this temptation, what choice am I going to make? Will I give in to that temptation? Will that lend, that'll then lead me down a path that is unfruitful? Or will I actually put my trust in God and believe the identity that God has spoken over me and trust that as I draw on wisdom from him, he will help me navigate this path that he's marked out for me? And actually, I think a big part of Christian maturity is in part growing in knowledge and understanding so that we can make these kind of godly choices, that we can draw on this godly wisdom and apply biblical truth into some of those situations. Even if at times it means having to walk through some pretty painful circumstances to get there. Um, In verse... 16 then, we're told then the consequence of this wisdom from below, this earthly wisdom for verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Interestingly here, James says disorder and every vile practice. Every vile practice kind of makes sense as a contrast, if you like, to good conduct that we read about in verse 13. But what does he mean by disorder? Well, what he's talking about here is he's, is he's saying that um, by choosing earthly wisdom, the order of authority within our lives gets all messed up. God, who should have the supremacy, God, who should be the ultimate authority, all of a sudden gets replaced. Gets replaced with myself. Gets replaced with I. All of a sudden, my desires, my wants become more important than actually what God says about circumstances and situations. And it throws everything else out. You see, just as that disorder indicates, if you like, a broken relationship that we then have with God because he's no longer the authority in our lives. It then also highlights the broken relationships that then form between one another. And when we look at a world around us that's just literally saturated with greed, with envy, with chaos, with mess, with disorder, and then within that you see the relationship breakdown, um, it kind of starts to make sense. In fact, a lot of that, all of that in the world around us stems from one place. It stems from the Garden of Eden, where God created all things in the Garden of Eden, and it was in perfect order. And he says to Adam and Eve, you can eat whatever you like, but not this one tree. And if you eat of it, then you'll die. You can read that in Genesis 2, 2.17, where he says, if you eat of this tree, 
and you'll die. Genesis 3, so the next chapter, we see the serpent comes along and he asks the question, did, really, did God really say, don't eat from any tree? Well, that's not what God said to begin with. But you can see there's, there's, there's something there's something of earthly wisdom beginning to kind of invade, if you like, and take control. And then later in verse 4, the serpent says, you're not going to die. God just knows that you'll end up like him, and he doesn't want that. It's this demonic wisdom that James is talking about. It's undermining the authority of God. And as we read on in the book of Genesis, they eat it. They eat the fruit. They're banished from the Garden of Eden. And in that moment, their bodies begin to decay that will ultimately result in death. And spiritually, they died. Spiritually, they were then separated from God. This disorder has now been introduced as Adam and Eve chose wisdom from below. And now mankind's relationship as a result is broken. And this disorder or this sin, as the Bible calls it, then sets a rift between us and God. And it's a gap that we could never cross. And we read, we read in the Exodus, God even gave laws to his people to say, look, if you can keep these commandments, then, then yes, we can come into relationship together. And yet we see time and time again, God's people failed to keep this law. I wonder if um, in that moment, the wisdom from below had too firm a grip on the people of God. They needed something, or rather someone, more powerful to be able to bridge that gap. And you see, that's where Jesus came. And Jesus lived this perfect life full of godly wisdom never replacing God's authority. And he gave himself for us on the cross, that he would die in our place as the perfect sacrifice. Remember, the, 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 the consequence of that sin, of, that, of, of, in, of clinging to earthly wisdom, was death. And Jesus died in our place. And yet, because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, because there was no sin in him, death had no hold. Death had no claim over him as the perfect one. And so he rose from the dead and he raised us to new life in him. You see, that's why we can now put our trust in him and trust that the price that he paid on the cross, he paid for our wrongdoing. He paid for our sin. Now, there is an opportunity for each of us to come and put our trust in Jesus we do that through repentance, through turning away from selfish ambition, turning away from the chaos, turning away from worldly wisdom and putting our trust in God, in God and making Jesus the ultimate authority in life. Not to say that everything will then be made perfect as we, as, as we read about in those moments of temptation we have a choice to make. But as we submit to his authority, we can draw on his power and be equipped to make decisions based on godly wisdom. So then, 
Uh, we're going to move on to verse 17. So what's the result then of this godly wisdom? Well, if we jump back to our passage in verse 17 and 18, it says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Here in verse 17, James gives us some incredible news. James describes wisdom from above as pure. This wisdom is refined. This wisdom is focused, making God the highest authority in our lives and living according to his plan and his will. That verse that I read from Proverbs chapter 9, the fear of the Lord, the reverence, the respect, the submission to the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's interesting, isn't it? Even, even, even in this room, if we were to replace God as the authority in our life, and I were to say, what, what do you want? There would probably be a hundred different things. All conflicting. Some of them maybe even contradictory. Right? That's why it's so important that we understand that God is the ultimate authority and we draw on that godly wisdom. Uh, moving on, godly wisdom is peaceable. Striving to reach across barriers of conflict and bring God's peace into situations. Godly wisdom is gentle. Not ready for a fight, not looking for a fight, but ready to serve. Ready to love ready to pour ourselves out for one another, ready to walk alongside and journey with one another. Godly wisdom is open to reason. Godly wisdom is ready to be challenged, to see things from another's point of view, and to walk through with them how we might apply godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy is showing compassion or forgiveness when actually you have the power to punish or discipline. God has shown us mercy. Where we deserve death as the punishment for our sin, Jesus died in our place that we could be forgiven. What compassion. We can then extend that mercy to others, to brothers and sisters. It's good fruit. It does us good. It does others good. Godly wisdom is impartial and sincere. It doesn't show favoritism. Owen, a few weeks back, shared with us from chapter 2. It doesn't take sides. It doesn't show bias. It's sincere. Godly wisdom doesn't need to try and fake anything or try and manipulate circumstances to get what it wants. That's the type of wisdom that we should be committed to. Godly wisdom, wisdom that flows from above. And in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James gives us a beautiful picture in this verse a picture of fields that are ready for harvest. And in the field, the crops are righteousness or goodness. 
is all the things that we read about in Scripture, that, that as followers of Jesus, is all the things that we hope to see in the world. But it's interesting, how did it get there? How did those crops get there? How did this harvest that sprung up, how did it get there? Well, in verse 18, it was planted by those who make peace. The role of peacemakers, those who are committed to living peacefully, confident that God will provide for them. Peacemakers who don't need to elevate their own selfish ambition, but trust God to meet every need. Peacemakers, they don't feel the need to fight against others to get what they want because they know that God tends to every single need. Peace-loving peacemakers plant these seeds that produce a harvest of righteousness and goodness that blesses others and the world around us. It's interesting. It's not by those who keep peace, but by those who make peace. There's a subtle difference here. Peacekeepers, if you like, stand between two warring factions. So you might describe the UN as a peacekeeping force. They basically create a line between two, 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 two warring entities. And whilst it's a noble endeavor uh, and incredibly brave and tough at times, um, that, that standing between two warring parties does very little to actually tackle the historic issues and underlying situations that people are living with or, situ- or circumstances that they're facing. But the idea is that if the UN can hold that line for long enough, then there are diplomats, there are politicians, there are others that can sit down together and they can discuss what peace looks like. And it may just be a handful of people, but they would be the peacemakers. You see, to try and keep the peace doesn't necessarily resolve anything. The underlying issues are still there. They're never actually dealt with. But to make peace, in a biblical context, to make peace is to look for reconciliation is to look for repentance, to look for forgiveness, to look for restoration of relationship, for look to, for trust to be restored um, and for reconciliation to be made. It's interesting, isn't it? These last two verses, there's been a lot about not just the choices that I make, whether I will give myself to godly wisdom or to earthly wisdom, but actually it's about the impact that that hen has on other people. For instance, if you look at peaceable, well, you need somebody to make peace with. Uh, if, you, if you think about it in terms of open to reason, well, you need somebody to reason with. And actually, when you put it in the context of the church, it's about our relationships with one another. And now over the last 18 months, that's been a challenge. That's been a real challenge. We've experienced lockdowns, self-isolation, social distancing, um, and, and, and through it, and rightly so, it's been government mandated, it's legal, we have to respect the law. 
But through it, what we've seen is people have retreated into their bubbles. They've, they've removed from community doing life with one another. And we all know, Steph even mentioned it this morning, we all know the struggles of trying to connect on Zoom. To actually try and do community, we have to constantly mute yourself and unmute yourself. and it just, It's just not reality, is it? And so actually, what we're finding is people coming out of this situation where they've been essentially isolated for a year and a half. That's left us incredibly vulnerable. That's left us incredibly vulnerable with actually not a lot of other people or voices able to then speak in and help bring godly wisdom, to help shape decisions that we're making. And that's a real challenge. You see, without the proximity of brothers and sisters journeying with one another, you can find your judgment kind of clouded. Where, where you just need that conversation that somebody's just going to say, do you know what, mate, I think you should just do this. Go, yeah, all right, okay, yeah, you're right. We've all been there. And maybe even in this season, you found yourself leaning more into earthly wisdom, looking, look, looking to perhaps what will serve your own needs. Well, I've just got to get through this, and this has just got to be what I do. And actually, it's wisdom that has ultimately just been centered on you. Instead of godly wisdom, let's put Jesus at the center of your decision making. And I recognize that's a very harsh thing to say in the midst of people coming out of a pandemic. But hear my heart in it. If we truly believe the gospel, then drawing on godly wisdom has to be the thing that leads to good conduct that produces righteousness, that produces this goodness, that blesses us, blesses those around us. And so we're in a season of having to rebuild those relationships. We're in a season of having to learn to navigate how to do community again. And it's going to take time. We're all different people. We all have different personalities and we will all move at different paces with this. But we must be committed to walking together. We must be committed to making peace with one another. Knowing that as we sow into this field of righteousness in our lives, sowing into the fields of righteousness in relationships and communities, that actually the promise is that we will reap a harvest. That's incredibly good news. So I want to encourage us today. Let's, let's stay the course. Let's keep bringing things before the Lord. Let's let one another into our lives. And if there are things where you need to be reconciled, there are issues where you need to make peace, then do that. Just Draw alongside your brother or sister and just share with them, honestly, your situation, your circumstances. And seek reconciliation. Seek forgiveness. Seek that that relationship might be restored.